I don't know. Of anything that I have taught or studied or taught other than when I first discovered who Christ was that's had as much of an impact on my life as what we're studying now. I'm also hearing feedback from people more than I've heard on other things that we've talked about because we're getting right literally down to the heart of things. And it is a time when we need to do that. It's a time when there's no time left to play around. I've heard this for years, we can't play church anymore. Well, we really can't play church anymore. If you just look at what's going around us, the pace of disasters and the pace of this things happening. I was sharing with somebody yesterday from church. I said, you know, you, 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 you think of these kinds of disasters that have happened in Japan, maybe happening in third world countries, but to see it happen in an, an industrialized, educated, intelligent nation, and it's in a magnitude and with such speed that they're not prepared to handle it. And it lets me know that we kind of sit in a sense of complacency that, well, everything's going to kind of stay the way it is. And I shared yesterday, I remember when the Soviet Union fell. I grew up under the Soviet Union in place and thinking, that could never happen. And it seemed to happen overnight. So things will not necessarily stay the way we are. But God stays the way He is. God never changes. And we've seen as we've begun to study this that it is a time to get serious with God. Not afraid of Him, not afraid. I've told you over and over again, the Bible says more about not being afraid than anything else. But we're not to be afraid, but we're, not, we're to be alert, sober, and aware. And so I've told you that I believe, believe God's focus for us for this year really is on who He is. Not just what He does, but who He is and especially who Jesus is. Jesus is what separates everything. He doesn't just separate the old, the B.C. from the A.D., and now they're trying to get rid of that by using other terms. But, but he literally separates heaven from hell. And he is the issue. You can talk about, to people about God, but the moment you mention Jesus, now you find out where people are because he is the issue. He is the issue. He's not one of several. He is the issue, and he made himself that. And so we're going to learn who He is. Well, I know who He is. Yeah, but do you? Your life reflects, not in church, your life reflects what you believe of Him. Because we can believe one thing with our head and something very different with our heart. And it's the heart that matters. You're saved by if you believe with your heart, not with your head, with your heart. There are ivy-covered walled institutions filled with men and women with degrees, with name, numbers, letters after their name, more than letters in, front, in their name, in theological institutions who know about him but don't know him. And as much as they know about him, what they know about him doesn't open the doors to heaven. It's knowing him. And this year our determined purpose is to know him at a level that we've not known him before. And what began to go in me was, was at first John chapter 5, which you don't, I don't want you to turn there, because that scripture at the very end of that whole book struck me, and it talks about putting away idols. 
And I'm saying, what does that have to do with the rest of what he's talking about? Because the context right before is he's talking about coming to know him in the midst of a world that's controlled by darkness. Well, if it was controlled by darkness then, how much more now so? And so the pattern that he's teaching in there is that God's way of coming through the darkness is to draw closer to him and to know him better. But in order to come closer to him and know him better, apparently the Spirit of God has determined, and he does know, he has determined that to do that, we have to first of all put away idols. In 1 Corinthians, I think it's 6.19, it talks about flee from idols. So we began to look at this concept of idolatry. And we went back to where it really is first mentioned, and that's in, in uh, Exodus chapter 20, which is the... Ten Commandments, that God hands the Ten Commandments to Moses on the mountain. And he's just had in chapter 19 the people gather around the base of the mountain so that he might come down and visit them and display who he is to them so that they may reverence, here he is, so that they may know him, so that he could lead them through the wilderness. God wanted to lead them through the wilderness to the promised land, but in order to do that, he wanted them to know who he is because they had come out of a place of Egypt, and he's the one that delivered them out of Egypt where they'd been in bondage, where they had been in a place where everybody else served idols. And the first thing he wanted to address was who the real God is. And that's why that last song we sang is so significant because it comes from what God said to Moses when Mo God said, Moses, you're to go back and tell the people I'm going to deliver them. And he says, well, who shall I say sent me? And God's answer was so simple and profound. Just say, I am sent you. I am. That word means self-existent one. I am. Anything you add after it limits me. I just am. No one causes me to exist, and no one can cause me to stop existing, and I'm the source of everyone else's existence. I just am. Say that. But when God got them out of Egypt, out into the wilderness, that he had to introduce himself to them because they had just heard about him through their fathers, but he wanted them to know him directly. Psalm 103 tells us the result of this attempt. It says the children of Israel knew his acts, his deeds, but Moses knew his ways. God wanted them to know his ways. He came down on the mountain to introduce himself to them, and they fled in fear and told Moses, you've got to go up and talk to him. So Moses comes up on the mountain, and the first thing God gives to him are what we call the Ten Commandments. And the first thing God says to them is, I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It wasn't some other God that did it. I am the one who delivered you. I am the one responsible for your deliverance. I am the one responsible for providing for you. In other words, I am your source. And then he goes on to say, you shall have no other gods or no other sources before me. Then he goes on to say, and you shall not make for yourself any images that you shall bow down and worship. And we talked about that's the essence of idolatry. Idolatry is when you make by your own efforts your God. 
Well, the obvious things of that is you make little statues. You may put them on your dashboard. You may put them in your yard somewhere. When we go down into Mexico in the mission fields, you drive down. There's one state highway that runs down through the jungle. And when you're driving down at night, you can see these little altars that are built by the side of the road with little candles and things like that. And they're trusting that whatever figures are in there are somehow going to keep evil spirits and evil away from them. And that's idolatry. But that's an obvious form of idolatry. I trust that none of you have an idol sitting in your corner of your living room that you get up in the morning and you bow down to. I trust that you don't do that, okay? But there are much more subtle forms. And that's what we've been focusing on. There's a story in Joshua when the children of Israel, the next generation, gets to the place of entering into the promised land. They cross the Jordan River and they're going to face this first major obstacle which was the city of Jericho. And God appears supernaturally to Joshua, their leader, gives them a strategy to perform, which doesn't, I'm sure it's not taught at the war college, I'm sure it's not, you know, it's, but, but, but when God says do it and you obey him, it works. And the walls fall down, but God, the instructions were do not take for yourself anything from this city. No gold, no silver, because it's going to all belong to God first. That's the tithe. It's an acknowledgement that he's your source. And there was one man named Achan, A-C-H-A-N, who in cleaning out this house saw this this purple cloth and these gold objects and they just spoke to him. Take me home. Take me home. I'm on sale. No, we won't go there. (laughs) Take me home. I'd look wonderful hanging in your tent. Whatever it is, he gave in to that temptation and he took it and he buried it in his tent. The result was that when they went on to attack the next city, which was one-tenth the size of Jericho, they were terribly defeated. And, And Israelites were killed. And Joshua cried out to God saying, What happened? Did you leave us? And God says, no, someone took of the profane and they hid it in their tent. And so the Spirit of God went around and showed Joshua how to find out whose tent it was and where it was hidden because that had to get out in order before God could lead them any further in the promised land. Put away idols. So what that tells us is there's some idols that we may have in our lives but they're not obvious, they're hidden idols. So we began to talk about hidden idols. They're idols of the heart. See, the hidden places we have are in here where nobody else can see. And very often we have trouble seeing what's in there. But just like with Achan, the Spirit of God is well able to pull back the cover of the tent and shine the light of truth in there and reveal those hidden areas of your heart that have become your idols. We saw that God spoke about, about what the essence of an idol. He said, you can worship me on an altar made on dirt, on the ground, or you can worship me on an altar made of, on stone, but as long as you don't take a tool and touch that stone with a tool. Because the, moment, the reason the earth is okay, because who made it? God made it. A stone is okay as long as it's untouched, because God made the stone. But the moment man puts his chisel and his hammer 
to that stone, he's now added his own idea, his own effort, his own talent to that thing that God made that he's going to worship from. And the Bible says we have now profaned that and it's disqualified as something on which to worship God. Just as that's true of the ground and just as it's true of the stone, it's also true of your heart. And that's what we've been talking about. The first hidden idol we looked at were worries and cares of this life. We looked in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus says where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And he goes on and talks about, about seeking God first and God will provide these things for us. And he says, therefore, because of that, do not worry because when you worry, what you're saying is, I don't trust that God's my source, therefore, I have to add to God's effort. Oh, I know God loves me, I know God takes care of me, but I've got to help him out. And so when we worry, that's because we're trying to help God out with our own mind and our own figuring. We're not resting in his promises. Now, if you're not doing what he requires, then you won't rest. What does he require? Don't rob me and keep the tithe from me. Because when we hold back the tithe, we're saying, God, I don't trust you. I don't acknowledge that you're my source. See, that's the issue is who's your source? Who's your source? When things got rough in, the, in 2011, in 9-11, in, 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 uh, back 10 years ago, it's hard to believe, people were quoting the 91st Psalm all over the place because it's a tremendous promise of protection and provision. But they overlooked the first verse, which is, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. And what's the secret place of the Most High? It's having Him first as your source of everything you need, your source of provision, your source of comfort, your source of well-being, your source of everything. God will use people and means to provide it, but He's got to be the source. If He's not the source, whatever is the source is your God. And thou shalt have no other gods before me. So we looked at the natural things of life, and we saw that's kind of obvious. It was kind of a little hard and uncomfortable to recognize that worry is a sign of idolatry because the other side of that is covetousness. The Bible says in several places that covetousness is idolatry. But then we began to look at something a little more subtle last time. We looked at the story of Abraham. Abraham was a man that God chose out of a pagan society and said, I want to start a new people with you, and that's the people of Israel. And what I want to do is I'm going to start it by simply you trusting in my word. So he picked an old man and an old woman, and she was barren. And he said, because I say so, you're going to have a child born of that old woman that's barren. We saw Abraham after about 10, 15 years decided to help God out because it wasn't working the way he thought it was going to work. So they worked out a scheme whereby they had a child his child, but through her servant, they called him Ishmael, and we saw they presented Ishmael to God and say, here's, here's your will, because God's will was that they have a son, that through him, that God would be the father of many nations. But they tried to help God out, and when they did, they profaned what God wanted to do. And then we saw once this child was born, born out of when they finally trusted God, when he was about 20 years old, so it was almost 50 years into this process, God said one morning, Abraham, I want you to take that son, your only son whom you love, and I want you to offer him back to me. We saw God required 
something God had given him. Something that not was only good, but it was part of God's plan and destiny for carrying out his will and his kingdom. And God said, I want that back. So we saw that because God wanted to know that in Abraham's heart, God was still first. And we saw that God will sometimes, in fact, not sometimes, he will eventually, whatever he's entrusted to you that's his, he will ask for you to give it back to him in some form so that you know it's his and not yours. And that's what we looked at last time. We're going to look at another hidden idol this morning. Each time we're getting down a little deeper in, so it may get a little more uncomfortable, but you know it's freeing. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. The more I've read this, the more I've seen this in here. This is Paul's testimony. The Apostle Paul, now you know his background, that Paul was a highly educated man. He sat under the most, most highly respected rabbi of his day, Gamaliel. He sat at his feet and studied. He was, uh, we're going to look at, what his, we're gonna look at, his, at his, um, his resume in a minute, but he was highly educated, highly intelligent. God used him to write two-thirds of the New Testament. But before he was saved, he was very zealous for the things of Israel, and he was actually convinced that Christianity was a heresy. And so every, with every fiber of his being, he devoted all of his energy to destroying Christianity. And he would go around with instructions to arrest and bring back for execution anybody that was caught openly worshiping Jesus as the Messiah because they believed that the Messiah had not yet come. And so it was heresy, it was blasphemy for this man to claim he was the Messiah. And then, of course, as you know, in Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, this heretic appeared to him and showed him was he was the Messiah. And Paul fell on his face and repented and was converted in that moment. And this is the man that writes this testimony. And it is so important for us because it reveals these idols in his life. And as we listen into Paul's story, perhaps the Spirit of God might touch something in our own lives. Verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it's safe. In other words, I don't mind saying this again and again and again because I know it's going to, look at this, it's going to produce safety for you. Safety. It's not saying it's going to make you know more, although it will. He's not saying it's going to make you feel stronger. If you understand what I'm teaching you, he said, I don't mind going over this again and again and again because I recognize that if you get a hold of that, it's going to produce safety for you. Which means if I don't quite get this, I may not be quite as safe as I think I am. Safe from what? Well, I've shared with you, the Bible warns us that in these last days, many of the elect, that's the saved, are going to be deceived brought off course, pulled away into things they never thought they'd be aware, pulled into. Why? Because they didn't learn what Paul's talking about here. So apparently to the Spirit of God, understanding what Paul's about to explain to them was a major part of their being safe in the day that they lived in. And it's in here for our instruction. Verse 2, Beware of dogs. 
Now, he's not talking about four-legged dogs. He's talking about two-legged dogs. In every house of God, there are different types of animals. There's sheep, there's goats, there's dogs, there's wolves. They have different motives. Beware of dogs. He says that in several places. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Now, what he's talking about here is there was an, there was an effort by some to infiltrate the church to try to bring them back under Judaism by requiring them not only to believe in Christ, but also to submit, because this is written to Gentile believers, to submit to the rite of circumcision, which, of course, involves the cutting of the flesh. The significance of that is under the old covenant that God handed to Moses, excuse me, Abraham, the sign of being a Jew, of being part of the covenant children, was that your body was, the males were cut on the eighth day, they were circumcised, and that was a sign, a mark on their outer body, that, that they were, it's like a brand mark, that they had been, they were part of a covenant people. But the Bible is very clear, when Christ came, what he did was, he entered into a new covenant, that Hebrews talks about a better covenant with better promises. The mark of this covenant is not a mark on the body like the circumcision is to a male at eight days of age. The mark of this is a cutting of the heart that's made by the Spirit of God. It's called the circumcision of your heart. It's a cutting away of the old and making you sensitive and clean for the new. It's a cutting that's done by the Holy Spirit, not by a flint knife. But there were those in Paul's day, and there are those today, they just do it differently, who try to believe, that, that, that try to teach that, that you're saved by faith in, in Christ, but also you still have to submit to the physical act of circumcision. In other words, you still, Christianity is an offshoot of Judaism, not a fulfillment of it. Very crucial. There was a council held that you see covered in Acts chapter 15 where the church fathers met and the Spirit of God revealed to them that's not what was required anymore, that because of the Spirit of God coming into them, that replaced the act of physical circumcision. But the mutilation he's referring to here are people that are trying to inject this Old Testament... Oh, oh, here we go. Don't get off into this, John. The Old Testament doctrine into the New Testament church. And they're still out there today. They just don't use circumcision. They use other things. We're not going there today, John. We're not going there today, John. We're not going there today, John. We can't afford the time. Maybe some other day. We're not going there today, John. Okay. Verse 3, moving along. For we are the circumcision, this is the true circumcision, who worship God in the Spirit, or worship the Spirit of God, and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no choice, confidence in the flesh. The word rejoice is a Greek word that means to boast. Some of your translations will say that. What he's about to go through here now is before he came to Christ, what he put his confidence in. In fact, after he came to Christ, he had to deal with some of these things. So we're going to look at the things that he put his heart trust in 
for his, who he is. Every one of us needs to have a sense of our identity, a sense of where we fit in, a sense of our well-being, because that's what, that's what Psalm 23 talks about, that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall, he makes me to lie. talks about the shepherd will create an atmosphere that's the, where the sheep feel safe to eat and to mature and to grow and to produce wool. That even though they're going through the valley of the shadow of death, he, the shepherd's there to protect them so that even in the midst of difficult times, they'll feel safe and taken care of. So we need to have a, 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 a sense of our identity, who we are. We need, and from that, we have a sense of, of, of our well-being. This is if we're healthy. Sense of a good sense of who, my image of who I am and my, who I am is a, is, is, is a good person. I'm healthy and I'm, I'm accepted and I'm, well, I'm, a, I'm a well, healthy person on the inside. And now Paul is going through the things he trusted in to provide that for him. In other words, these were things that were his source of his sense of well-being. Because we're talking about idolatry. And idolatry is anything you make to be your source of something God is to be your source of. And one of the most important things we need to have as a source in our life is a source of our sense of well-being, of peace, of value, importance. And the question is here, what do you draw that from? So Paul's going to list here the things that he used to draw them from. And see, the battle that was going on in this church is these Judaizers, as they were called, were trying to draw these Christian believers back into trusting in to something they did to their bodies as a basis of their standing before God and confidence before God. So Paul says, we don't boast. We don't boast. We boast in Christ Jesus. In other words, our confidence is in Christ Jesus, not in our flesh. By flesh, he means here anything I produce, like taking that stone and adding something or taking something away from it. So that's the message here. We're going to go look at some of the things that he listed. This is kind of his resume of the things he used to present because we all do that. We, we all have, you all have some image of yourself. Some of you, it's a pretty good image of yourself. Some of you, you really struggle with your image of yourself. Some of you, you don't know what your image of yourself is, but even that's an image. <laughs> and that determines how you feel about yourself and how you feel about yourself affects how you treat other people and how you relate to God. So this is very important to understand. And in most of our cases, that image we have of ourself and that sense of value and the source of it, we never sat down and figured out we just are the result of things that happened in our lives and I tell you, they did not happen to you by accident. There was an enemy of your soul out there who wants to form that image and he'll form a good image in you as long as it's not based on something God's done for you and instead it's based on something somebody else has done for you or you've done for yourself. Are you following me? All right. Let's go look at these and we'll see more carefully. Now just keep in mind, we're not talking about you this morning. We're just talking about Paul. All right? We're going to take Paul apart. He's dead, long gone, so it won't matter to him. So yeah, it doesn't, we're not talking about you or me, so we can just listen with a just open mind here and just talk about this terrible man, Paul. 
I don't know how God used him because we're going to see, my goodness, was this guy into idolatry. Oh, my goodness. So we'll just follow along here. So we rejoice or we boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh or anything that we contribute. Then he starts talking about himself. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has confidence in the flesh, even I so more. In other words, Paul says, here's my resume. I don't know what yours looks like, but I got a pretty good one. So I'm going to go down and read my resume to you. Because if anybody could have had confidence in what they did, I could have. All right, let's go see what Paul put his trust in. Verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. So what he's saying is, I was part of the covenant family that God set aside and treated as special. This is his heritage he's talking about now. Now we're not talking about you, we're talking about him. All right? So he had confidence in his heritage, where he came from. That was part of his identity. You have got to understand the way the Jews were trained, especially in his day. Because you see, Jesus ran into this all the time. Jesus said at one point, he says, you think you're all right because you have Abraham as your father. In other words, just because he's your ancestor, you think you're great but you don't do what he said. He talked of me, and you don't accept me. You think because the law was given to you through Moses, that's what makes you special. No, it's your observance of it. So they had developed a pride in what they were part of. We're just talking about Paul now, not you. They were talking about his pride in his family, his pride in the people that he came from. That was a major part of his identity. So when you asked Paul, who was he us? I am a Jew circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel. I'm not like you Gentiles. Jews looked down on Gentiles because they had no covenant with God. And they forgot that the covenant they had with God was not something they earned, but was given to them as an act of grace. Which is why Jonah had his nose bent out of shape when God called him to go to Nineveh and preach to them. Jonah didn't go the other direction because he was afraid the only thing Jonah was afraid of is that they'd repent and God would forgive them because it was an idolatrous people that were hated by the Jews because they were cruel. And Jonah was afraid that he knew God too well that if they repented, God might forgive them. And that's exactly what happened once Jonah went through his little repentance in the belly of the fish. Goes through and preaches the sermon, which you know his heart wasn't in. Seven days yet, none of us going to fall. Seven days yet, none of us going to fall. Seven days yet, none of us going to fall. Walked through the city and sat down on the other side. The king holds a, hears it, and says, you know, maybe if we cry out to God, he might forgive us. Calls a fast, they fast. 
put on sackcloth and ashes, cry out to God, and God forgives them, and now Jonah's really ticked off. He's sitting out there pouting outside, and God has to teach him a lesson that God cared about them because he causes a tree to grow up, and Jonah sits under this tree and gets nice and comfortable in the tree, and then the next day it's burned up under the hot sun. And God says, you care more about a tree than 600,000 souls in that city that were going to go to hell. There's religious pride is what comes out of we're special because of what we have or our heritage. Now, I know we're not talking about you or me. But just perhaps we could be tempted to think that our value comes from where I go to church. As special as I believe this church is, as much as I believe God's calling this church, coming to this church and belonging to this church is not what makes you special. This is not a club that you just happen to be blessed to be part of. We are part of the body of Christ. And God has blessed this place and has a destiny for this place, but that's not our identity. That's not our identity. Well, it gets even better. Let's go further here. Of course, we're talking about Paul now. Remember, we're talking about Paul. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, what's that about? Benjamin was the last of Jacob's 12 sons. He was the, boy, the little boy born when they thought they were done. So he was, and he was the one that, that, that when Joseph wants to get his father's heart, says to the brothers, go bring your youngest brother. Because he knew that D was dad's favorite. He did not want this boy out of his care. In other words, he was the closest to his father's heart. There's a prophecy that Moses speaks over each of the 12 tribes right before his death. It's in Deuteronomy 33, and in verse 12, Moses gives a blessing over Benjamin. And he says, of Benjamin, he said, the beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him, by the Lord, who, dwell, who shelters him all the day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. So what's Paul saying here? Paul's saying, if I wanted to have confidence in my flesh, here's what I used to have confidence in. I'm a Jew. I'm a circumcised Jew, so I'm part of the covenant people that God called. Not only that, of the Jews. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, which is closest to the God's heart. It's only even more special than the other Jews. It gets better. These are things he put his confidence in for his sense of identity, of who he is, of his well-being, of his importance. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, what's that mean? Well, I did a little research. In the old days, there was a practice. It was known as elange. It was to mean to express something as a superlative but instead of doing what we do, which is put an ER or an EST on the end. So if somebody's proud, that's one thing, but the next person is more proud, they're prouder. 
But if, the one, if you happen to be the most proud in all the places, you're the proudest. That's how we do it. But they did it by adding the same term in the possessive. So you're a Hebrew of the Hebrews means that you are not just a Hebrew, but you're the elite of the Hebrews. Let me give you a couple of the examples where it's used in other places just to show you this. Genesis 9.25 says, A servant of servants shall Canaan be. Exodus 23, one of the, 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 the most holy place was also called the Holy of Holies. Numbers 3.32 says, He's a chief of the chiefs. Deuteronomy 10.17 says that He is Elo, 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 Elohai of Elohim, Adonai of Adonam. 1 Kings 8.27, talking about the upper heaven, says, And heaven of the heavens cannot contain thee. And Ecclesiastes, talking about vanity, Ecclesiastes 1.2, says the worst of all is the vanity of vanities. And of course, the title to the Song of Solomon is the Song of Songs. And Jesus' title is what? The King of Kings. He's the ultimate, the most high. The greatest of all kings is the King of of kings. Daniel 2.47 refers to God as the God of gods. So the point that Paul's saying here is not only was I a covenant Jew, I was of the most special tribe to God. Not only was I covenant Jew of the most special tribe to God, but of all the Hebrews, I was the most Hebrew. I did everything more diligently, better, with more heart than anybody else did. I tried harder than anybody else. Now notice where the focus is. It's on what he did and on things that he was given and what he did. This is a true story of Paul. He's using it as an example. Concerning the law... I was a Pharisee. Now, what's the law referred to? It refers to his observance of all the things he was supposed to do. He dotted all the I's. He crossed all the T's. He showed up to church on time. When he was told to be here as an usher a quarter of, he was here at 20 of. When he was told to do this, he did everything early on time. He did it more better than anybody else, harder than anybody else, with more effort than anybody else. And he took a lot of confidence in the fact of how hard he worked at that. You might even say he was driven. Most of the times, it's good to have a drive, but there's a difference between having a drive and being driven. Because when you have a drive, you're sitting in the driver's seat. That means you can decide when to slow down, when to pull off in a rest stop, where to steer. But when you're driven, there's somebody behind you pushing you. When you're driven, there's no peace. You're compelled to do something. Now, what we're going to see is most of the cause of why we turn to people and things for this satisfaction is we're trying to solve something missing inside, some inadequacy, some weakness. We're trying to cover over something. Very often, the most outgoing people are the most insecure. 
Very often the most driven people are the most fearful. Many times these things, when they're pushed, are covering something that we don't look at because it looks, makes us look on the outside like everything's okay. And on the outside it may be, but we're talking about what's in here because that's what counts to God. So of the law, he said, I kept it perfectly. Now, we, that's interesting because I saw this. I've, that's always troubled me because Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 talking about the law that none of us are righteous, no, not one. He says, the very reason I qualified for grace is I couldn't keep the law. And here he says, when it came to the law, perfect. And I saw this morning in going through this what this is talking about. We all have an image of how well we're performing. You know, I'm doing pretty well. And the reason I know I'm doing pretty well is I'm not doing as poorly as Joe. I pick on Joe because Joe's doing well. And Jesus confronted that because there was one Pharisee, at least I'm not like, the, like those, those infidels. Those, you know, at least I'm not like those. And Jesus attacked them and said, you're whitewashed sepulchers. In other words, you've got whitewash on the outside. You look clean on the outside, but inside you're a brood of vipers. You're an empty sepulcher. So Paul's saying, you know, I thought I was doing great under the law because I was doing better than a lot of people I thought. I was, because he talks about this later. He says, when we compare ourselves by ourselves, that's what he was doing. I'm doing well because I'm not doing as poorly as the rest of these people that aren't as good as I am. See, his sense of identity was coming from how he performed. And so he had to measure his performance against other people, and he picked other people that weren't doing as well as he was, so he felt good about himself. That's man-made image. Man-made image. It's just like taking a hammer to a rock and cutting off a part of it and worshiping God on it. God said, don't make for yourself any image that you worship as the source of your identity. Now, we're only talking about Paul here. right? So just relax. It gets better. Verse 7. Uh, excuse me. I missed something. Verse 6. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. What's that all about? He's looking at his heart and saying, I was passionate for God. So I know I was good. I know I was great because I was more passionate than anybody else. No, he's just saying, he's talking about he got his sense of well-being from the intention of his heart. God, I want to do that. God, I want to serve you. God, I want to do that. God, I'm zealous for you. So I'm measuring how good I am by the intentions of my heart. Well, doesn't the Bible say that God looks in the inward man and not the outer man? We, we take that out of context. That's in 1 Samuel where God tells Samuel to come out and to pick, God said, I'll show you Saul's successor. And he lines up all of Jesse's sons, almost all of them. 
and goes down and says, it's got to be this one. He's big and brawny. He looks like a king. God says, not him. Goes down to the next one. He's almost as big, almost as brawny. Goes down through all the sons and says, you know, God, these are the obvious ones. They're not here. He says, ask him if there's another one. He says, Jesse, do you have another son? Oh, yeah, there's the kid, the scrawny kid. He's out in the field. Call him in. When he comes in, God says, that's the one. And the point he goes on to say is because God looks on the heart. And that's for qualification. He doesn't look on your skills. He doesn't look at your natural abilities. He looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. Saul was evaluating his own heart. It's one thing when God looks at your heart and says, that's what qualifies you. It's another thing when you look at your heart and say to God, that's what qualifies me. But we're only talking about Saul, Paul. Okay, all right. Because of that, we can go on. But look at this. Verse 7. What things were gained to me, these I counted as loss. Why? Yet indeed I count all things as loss. Is he talking about his money, his clothes? No. Everything he has put his confidence in. Everything that he has ever relied upon for his sense of his identity, his sense of his well-being, his sense of importance, his sense of, of anything other than God. He said, whatever that is, I counted it as loss. Why? For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. That word excellency means surpassing value, some translations say, and that's more accurate. In other words, I've done an evaluation here. There's all this stuff I built into my life to make me feel safe, secure, well, healthy, all these things. And in many of our cases, we're not doing too good a job with that. That's why this pill industry is so big. I'm not saying never need to do it, but in many cases, it's a substitute for what God's designed. Because all that stuff won't do it. He says, I've looked at that stuff and I've decided I can't have that stuff and know Christ also. You can't worship God and mammon. You can't have idols and really know God intimately. That's what he's saying here. I counted all but loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. For whom I've suffered the loss of all things. He's not talking about money and things like that. That didn't matter to him. And count them as rubbish. Let's think about rubbish for a minute. There are some translations that use a little stronger word. Ever lose something in the trash? You know, you think maybe it was thrown out in the trash? And you got to go in there and pull the stuff out and pull the stuff out because you're trying to find that piece of paper that you were supposed to show to the doctor tomorrow, or whoever, you know, and you're in there and it's got, you know. And when you're done, you, what's the next thing you're going to do? Going to go to the faucet and, or spigot, whatever you call it, and turn it on. You want to get that, you want to get that off your hands as fast as possible. Paul, when he saw the difference between knowing Christ and who he is and what that meant to all this rubbish that he had collected in his life to be a substitute for that. He saw that as 
garbage to get off of his hands. I want to get it away from me because it's polluting, it's profaning me from what's pure and true. That's what he's saying here. And I count it as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him not having my own righteousness, not having my own identity, not being the source of my own well-being, not being the source of my identity. A number of years ago, a very well-known Christian singer was on a well-known Christian program. And they sat around just talking, which is dangerous. Just talking. She said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave my husband and family because I really need to find my own identity. I almost went through the TV set. And said, you need to get saved. Because the Bible teaches when you come to Christ, you lose your identity and you gain His. And identity is important. You need to have identity because it, it helps you know who you are in comparison to everybody else, who you are in comparison to God. And the question is, are you building your own identity and your own sources of identity or is God, Christ Jesus, excuse me, Christ Jesus the source of your identity? Because let's see what Paul goes on to say. And be found in Him not having my own righteousness which is from the law, from my own efforts, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness which comes from God by faith, and that I may know Him. See, it's tied with knowing Him. You can't know Him and hold on to these other sources. Because you're making your own God. We'll get into that one. That I may know Him. That word know means intimate knowledge and the power of His resurrection. That means the power that took place when God raised Him from the dead, it brought about a change that took His dead body and made it alive. Romans chapter 6 says, when you came to Christ, you were baptized, joined into His death, joined into His burial, that you may be joined into His resurrection. He's not just talking about on that final day because He goes on in a few verses to talk about that one. The resurrection He's talking about is the change that took place in you when you came to Christ. You're not who you used to be. All things were passed away. All things have become new. And those new things are of, out of, born out of God. That's who you are. And there's power in that. But you can experience that power when you're drawing your life. You're drawing your identity. You're drawing your comfort. You're drawing all those things from something you've made and man's made. And not drawing them from God, the source who lives inside of you. Because those things will pass away. We've just seen in a prosperous nation things that people have built their life on washed away in moments in front of their eyes. Gone. Now what do they turn to? God wasn't washed away. 
that we may know him and the power of his resurrection. Oh, this is exciting. And the fellowship of his suffering. Oh, how many of you have that on your refrigerator as a verse? Lord, that I may know you. And I have been praying this prayer for a number of years. Because the suffering he's talking about isn't sickness and disease. It's the suffering of the flesh that doesn't want to do it. It's a sharing in his suffering. What was his suffering? The agony that he went through in the garden when he said three times, if there's another way. What he went through for those 40 days of temptation in the wilderness that the Spirit of God led him into. He was having to deal with his flesh. And that was the test, was to have him deal with his flesh. Have it under control. The suffering he's talking about is when you want to do one thing and the Spirit of God in you tells you to do something else. Now there's a battle goes on your flesh doesn't want to and your spirit's saying do it or the other way around. Your spirit says, don't touch that. Don't look at that. Don't go there. And I say, but I want to. There's a suffering that goes on there that I may be conformed to his death. What's the death? The death of Paul. I want to. What I want. You know how much of you still alive when somebody crosses you. That's one thing when you come out of church and you're so sanctified. Oh, Lord, I love you so much. It's another thing when you're under pressure, you're at work, Somebody says something about you, you wasn't it's true, and they've been annoying you for years anyway. You wish they were out of there. And they look at you the wrong way, and that old you just comes up and just wants to bless them in love. When that no longer happens, that part of you has died to him. Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Acts chapter 20, Paul talks about what the Spirit of God tells him, that there's suffering awaiting him, which is that he was going to be, he was going to be persecuted. And he said, none of these things move me for my life, my own life, no longer has any value to me. It's only his life in me. But see, he was being matured up to the model, which is Jesus, who said such things as, I only do what my father sh- I see my father doing. I only say what I, see my- I hear my father say. I don't do anything he doesn't show me to do. Now, you know, you look, a psychologist looks at that and says, that guy has a problem. He has no sense of his own identity. He has no, he's been robbed of his sense of identity. He hasn't been robbed of it. He gave it up. He submitted it to his source. And see, when it comes to God, when you turn yourself over to Him, you don't lose, you gain. Do you ever, and I'll, I'll end with this example. We may pick up a little bit here next week. Do you ever, ever fill up a, 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 a gasoline thing for your lawnmower or something like that or snowblower? You know, and you, go to, and you, you fill it up, you know, and then you go to, to pour it in and it's not coming out very fast. That's because there's this little nozzle on the other side 
You know what I'm talking about? And you've got to open that up. When you open it up, now the gasoline starts coming out. The reason for that is the gasoline cannot come out. Actually, it's the other way around, too. You can't put it in unless the air can come out because air occupies space that's designed for the gasoline. That's why in, you've ever put it in your, your car and it starts to spit back out of you because there's a vent, and you put it in sort of cover the vent or somehow. Anyway, the point is this. Because of one of the laws of physics, two things can't occupy the same space at the same time in this dimension. All right? That's also true spiritually. Whatever part of you you're occupying, he can't. So when he's confronting things in you, exposing things in you, for you now to stop trusting in those things and learn to begin to trust in him, you're making room for more of him alive in you. And Paul says, I caught on to this thing, and it's good. Therefore, I now choose to count all these things as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus and the fellowship of his suffering, that I may be conformed to his death in order that I may attain, the next verse says, if you look literally in the Greek, it says the out-resurrection from the dead. So he's talking about a different resurrection than the one he's talking about in the verse before. The resurrection of the verse before is the power of God to change us coming from within us. This resurrection he's talking about is the resurrection from the dead. Now he goes on just to make you feel better and says, I haven't attained to that yet. So you look at where the Paul was and he says, I haven't gotten there yet. But this is one thing I've learned to do. And this is my closing word to you. Forgetting that which lies behind. I press on towards the mark of the goal of the upward call of God, the upward call of God that's in Christ Jesus. So though we've talked about the Apostle Paul this morning, just perhaps the Spirit of God may identify something in you. that you, Because where this came from is God began to conf- expose things in me of how I wanted people to think of me that I didn't realize were down in my heart. And God said, would you mind if people thought this about you in order to obey me? And see, we deal with God. Well, yeah, God, there's these things I'm willing to get rid of. But we do that because while he's working on these things, he's not going to mess with these things over here because these are the real things I don't want to deal with. And we may not even consciously do that. But that's why you've got to allow the Spirit of God to shine the light on. You know, is this thing. Because you'll know it when he does. And I knew it. And I said, Lord, you know, what he said is, if if I have you do this, people may not like you. And it's like I could tell it was real because it gripped me in here. Well, what are people going to think? It wasn't sin. It was just something that may not be popular. And I said, what are people going to think? He said, well, what do you want? What people think of you or what I think of you? And I had to really wrestle with it because there's one thing when I'm talking to you and we're talking to each other, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's another thing when you're talking to God and he knows. And he said, I said, Lord, I don't want anything. I don't want anything that displeases you. I'd rather have your approval than everybody in the whole world. And the moment I said that and meant it in my heart, I felt something release out of me. And from that time on, he's been more real to me in that area where he's ever been before because he took that area out by exposing it because my confidence was more in what people thought of me 
than God. That was an idol. I know there are more, but we're just talking about Paul this morning, aren't we? So let's pray for Paul.